swung on and there it goes. That ball is high. It is far. It is Remember That Guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I am one of your hosts, James. I am your other co-host, Diaz, and we were going to have a great guest for you today. We were actually going to have the great Vince Scully on, but Vince Scully canceled on us last second. And we were able to get a pretty good one to replace them. Uh, so please, special guest, introduce yourself. Yeah, I mean, I wish you guys could have had Vin Scully too, but you know, you're stuck with me, the permanent rotating guest host, Xavier. We're happy to have you, Xavier. Thank you for finding time in your schedule for us. You are solidly like 60% Vin Scully. My only goal is to be the fill-in Frank PTI of this show. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm who you bring in when you can't get a better guest. You just you are the very special guest, capital V, capital S, capital G. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm gonna I'll go ahead and tell you who's making memories for you. Josh Allen's making memories for me. If you ask me which Josh Allen, I'll say that at this point, I think there's only one Josh Allen. Uh, I think there's a, a player for the Jacksonville Jaguars named Josh Allen, and then I think there's a guy in Buffalo. I looked up and his middle name is Patrick. Maybe he wants to do JP Allen, so maybe he's JP Allen now. Maybe he's Joshua Allen. But I don't think he's allowed to be Josh Allen anymore because uh, Josh Allen and Josh Allen played against one another in the fourth ever game where a quarterback played against a defensive player with the same name. One of the instances, two of the instances actually were in one season with Philadelphia. There was a quarterback named Tommy Thompson. Fucking great. Uh, And he was also a Cleveland linebacker. They played in weeks one and 12 in 1950. And then in 1997, Another Buffalo quarterback named Todd Collins played against New England linebacker named Todd Collins. But this is the first time they ever sacked the uh, quarterback. Josh Allen also got his first career interception against Josh Allen. He also got his first recovered fumble in his career (laughs) against Josh Allen. And for the fourth time, the defensive player won the game in this matchup. So I posit to you the ultimate win is just whenever you really need one. I feel like you can't do this all the time. You can't do this every week. But if you have no other game plan, you got to find someone that can play defense with the same name as the quarterback you're about to go up against. So far, that is going to absolutely guarantee you victory. So uh, Josh Allen is making memories for me, and uh, he's making memories for himself. He, He was a rookie 2019 Pro Bowler, but this was still probably his best game ever. The the eight tackles, career high, to go with the first ever interception, first ever recovered fumble. So what I would suggest is, if we remember from our women's golf discussion, there's a Korean name. I can't remember the exact Korean name, but it's very common to the point that there are nine of them on the tour, and they just go by so-and-so one, so-and-so two. The quarterback for the Bills should be Josh Allen two. That should be his name. You can be Josh Allen Jr. He can be anything other than just straight Josh Allen. He is not like Josh Allen default now goes to Jacksonville Josh Allen. I I think we can get totally on board with that. I fully endorse it. If he can manage to win, he needs to get back ahead. So if, if he becomes two and one on the career battle of Josh Allen, then he can be just regular Josh Allen again. But for now... He has to be the inferior Josh Allen, Josh Allen 2, Josh Allen the bitch, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> Josh Allen the lesser, be... the way they used to do with Roman Emperors. Diaz, while we're on that, uh, any, anything, anyone making memories for you right now? So, 
I have said since his rookie season that he was the best point guard on the Sixers, and people thought I was crazy at the time. But now it has become plainly clear that Tyrese Maxey is the best point guard on the Sixers. So the Sixers are on a three-game losing streak without Joel Embiid, who is in COVID protocols. He tested positive. Get well soon, Joel. All that said, it has given Tyrese Maxey the opportunity to step forward and claim a larger offensive role. And in the last two games, he scored at least 30 in both of them. He became the youngest Sixer to ever score 30 in back-to-back games, breaking Allen Iverson's mark. So, I'm not saying Tyrese Maxey is the next Allen Iverson. What I am saying is that he just broke Allen Iverson's record for youngest Sixer to score 30 in back-to-back games. He's just an absolute joy to watch. Just a big ball of energy. A absolutely adorable smile. Everything that you ever want in a young budding star, he has. He's just going to keep getting better. So I love you, Tyrese Maxey. Please continue to make fond memories for me. We'll get around to the wins, but if you just want to keep dropping 30 a game in the meantime, I'll take it. It's, I'm glad that you have a starting point card that you like this season. <laughs> that's I, that's said without that. a hint of irony. I'm glad that you have a starting point card that you like because I wasn't sure that you were going to this year. Well, you know, it's just amazing when the guy that brings the ball up to run your offense can also shoot the ball. It's crazy how much easier the game is when the, the guy concepts. that brings it up can... He can also shoot it. It's, inc- it's incredible. You know, point guards are known for passing, and there's some guys that really like to pass it and don't like to shoot it. That we don't need to name them. But when you just have even the threat of being able to shoot it, it makes the game so much easier. So keep it up, Tyrese. We love you. Xavier, who do you love right now? Who's making memories for you? Let's so, share our open affection for individuals that we will never meet in our lives and just and just talk I, mean, about I have one that we'll definitely never meet in our lives. So it is World Cup qualification time. Crunch time for many parts of the world. Calf still has halfway to go for this last round, which includes big game USA-Mexico tonight in Cincinnati. But no, today I want to talk about Kvicha Varchkelia, who is a winger for the country of Georgia. Love a good Georgian. So Varchkelia is the Georgian hope. He is only only 20 years old, uh, plays in the Russian uh, the Russian Premier League. He's already scored five goals for Georgia, including four in this current World Cup qualification cycle. Georgia is not a good team, but what hap- what ha- what has happened is in these UEFA groups, whichever team tops the group qualifies for the World Cup. Whichever team finishes in second has to go to a playoff to try to get to the World Cup. And Spain and Sweden were fighting each other for first and second in this group. Yesterday morning, Sweden was first, Spain was second. And they play each other in Seville on Sunday. Both were expected to win yesterday. And if that happened, then all Sweden would need is a draw in Spain to win. Sweden is shocked by Georgia 2-0 with both goals by Varchkelia. And now Spain only needs a draw to head to the at home in Seville to head to the World Cup. I watched this game yesterday. This kid was incredible. Sweden has really good players. A lot of people who start in top leagues all over all, all over the world and all over Europe. He was the best player on the pitch. And I tried really hard to pronounce his name. Kvicha Kvarchkelia. <laughs> he is making memories for me. Has anyone made the joke? 
about a Georgian team being directly influential in someone else's collapse. <laughs> the only the only other Georgian national athlete that I can remember, ironically enough, Para Antich played for the Atlanta Hawks. You remember he was he he looked like the God of War guy. He had like the shaved head and the beard, just looked very intimidating. Good old Para Antich. There are not enough guys nowadays uh, outside of maybe, you know, Steven Adams that just really take on, I'm going to be a big, burly, scary person persona in the NBA. I want more dudes trying to really play up the grr factor. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a sport where you're definitely right. Hockey has a lot of those guys that just really embrace, I have a big, thick beard and I'm here to fuck shit up. We don't have enough of these guys in basketball. Yeah, like, yes, you have James Harden, but but come on. Yes, it's nice, but I don't know. James Harden has never felt to me like he embodies beard energy. Brent Burns does. Look up a picture of Brent Burns. Oh, we don't need to question the beard energy of hockey. Brent Burns is a divisional foe. I am familiar with his his beards. Uh, He has three teeth. Three teeth and a massive beard. It's fantastic. Uh, Xavier, why don't we have you take it away for us this week? Yes, uh, so the topic that we had this week is forgotten contributors on championship teams. Guys who were key members of this team, but for some reason or, or another, they're not really remembered when you think about that team. This was my topic, and there was only one place that I could start, and that is the 1998 New York Yankees. And their third baseman, Scott Brocious. Oh, okay. I remember Scott Brocious. I remember him not not for his baseball playing, but on the N64 Ken Griffey baseball game, Scott Brocious. Whenever I did a fantasy draft, I always picked him up at third base. Love Scott Brocious. (laughs) So Scott Brocious, born August 15th, 1966 in Hillsboro, Oregon, also known as the Silicon Forest. Oregon has their own Silicon Valley that's called the Silicon Forest. And it is based in Hillsboro. much better. So I thought the Silicon Valley, I'll admit, I was very dumb as a child. I thought they literally just like also happened to mine silicon there. And that's why computer companies started up. So like, oh, we got all this silicon just lying around. We might as well start making computers out of it. (laughs) So Hillsboro is a city of about 100,000 people. Intel has one of their major headquarters there, and employs 20,000 people. The city is Intel and then other stuff, hence being the Silicon Forest. He stayed local. He played high school ball for the Rex Putnam Kingsmen, which is a fantastic team name. The Kingsmen. I love it. Rex Putnam. Uh, uh, Before he went to D3 Linfield College, where he starred for the Linfield Wildcats. Ended up being drafted in the 20th round of the 1987 draft by the A's. And was finally called up in 1991, where he hit a home run in his first game against the Mariners. So, Brocious plays seven seasons with the A's, mostly as the starting third baseman, but nothing really special. He had a great season in 96, where he hit 304 with 22 homers, OPS plus of 127. But then he fell off a cliff in 97. So, in 97, at age 30, he hit 203. 11 homers and an OPS plus of 53. He finished last in the majors for batting average, 
uh, OBP and slugging for all qualifying batters. He was the worst hitter in the entire league that year. And, and at third base, too. Third Jesus. Base and at the age of 30. So, in the offseason, he was traded to the Yankees for an equally struggling Kenny Rogers in the first trade ever made by Billy Bean. Wow. Yeah. Mr. Moneyball himself. Yes, first trade that he, he had ever made. And despite the poor 1997, Roche just quickly became the starting third baseman for the Yankees. He started nearly every game for the 1998 Yankees, one of the greatest teams of all time. Despite, James, I know your feelings about the Yankees, but they are the team that has the record for most wins and still won the championship because I don't count the, Mar- the Mariners team that did nothing. It's like the 73 and 9 Warriors. They're not the greatest the team of all time. So, of any team that won a title, they had the most wins, which puts them pretty high up there for greatest team of all yeah, time. Yeah, no, the Yankees are really good. Like, what do you want me to say, Xavier? The Yankees <laughs> have been very good. They've had at least a winning, at least a 500 record every single year that we've been alive. They're pretty good. I mean, saying the Yankees are good, that might be the hottest take that we've heard on this podcast yet. I mean... Saying Brocious was good for the Yankees after being the worst hitter in all of the major leagues in 1997. Just because of course unexpected. this trade goes perfectly for them. So uh, in, in, in 98, he hits 300, 19 homers, a career high, 98 RBIs, OPS plus of 121. Was selected for his first and only All-Star game at the age of 31. Brocious starred does. the Yankees through the playoffs. Uh, as they cruised with a three-game sweep against the, against Texas in the ALDS, 4-2 series win over Cleveland in the ALCS, and a sweep of the Padres in the World Series. During the playoffs, Brocious hit 400 in the ALDS, 300 in the ALCS with homers in both, and hit 471 in the World Series with two homers and six RBIs, including the key performance in Game 3, where... He hit a solo home run in the seventh inning to cut the Padres' lead to 3-1 before hitting a three-run home run off of Trevor Hoffman in the eighth to give the Yankees a lead that they would, they, they would never relinquish. Yeah, three-run three homer off one of the greatest closers of all time. Whatever. It just hurts to, like, relive it. And, and I'm so happy for you because I can hear the plain joy in your voice thinking about this. I mean, would love to experience good. that someday. I mean... Things aren't all rainbows for Brocious, but you know, this was a good a, a good couple weeks for him. Brocious wins the World Series MVP. 1998 Yankees team that had like seven Hall of Famers. The World Series MVP is Brocious, which I think is fantastic. Although he never replicated that year's success again, he did play three more seasons for the Yankees, winning two more titles and playing another. Uh, in 1999, uh, he won a Gold Glove. And then also caught the final out of David Cohn's perfect game. Uh, oh, nice. And then in 2001, which was a really difficult season for him, where he was the worst fielder in the major leagues with the most errors and the lowest fielding percentage, he did still have a great moment. He hit a game-tying two-out, two-run homer in Game 5 of the 2001 World Series, which... It's cool because it was the second straight day that a Yankees player had hit a game-tying two-out, two-run home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. Or Byung-Hyung Kim. At least he got his ring anyway. What I so, remember about that World Series 
is Bob Brenly just did not give a shit about the health of Byung Hyun Kim's arm. Like he just kept throwing him out there for absurd amounts of pitches. Like I I forget exactly how many games he pitched in, but like they were long outings in each instance. Like no 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 rest for the weary with that guy. Yeah, the 2001 World Series went to extras a lot, so everyone pitched a lot. I mean, most of them were, other than game six, they were all really close games. So kind of like what happened with the Roldis Chapman against the uh, against the Indians, where they just tried to burn his arm out as much as they could because they said, we only have this guy for this year, this playoffs. I don't care. We need to win. You know, sometimes that's what managers think. Who cares? If, if we win the title, who cares? The Diamondbacks won, so... <laughs> for them something i want to share with you all that i just looked up real quick because i had to know which world series has the most overall inning do you want to guess what the most innings in a world series is it is the 1991 it is 69 and that is so very good i was gonna guess 70 so that's very good i like that a lot so fortunately as we know from our damian miller discussion from the unaired pilot yankees do not win the world series that year and scott brocious retired right afterwards he has had a good second life as a coach uh he went back to linfield college's alma mater next year in 2002 as an assistant uh head coach and then became the full head coach in 2008 during his time at linfield he led them to their first ever uh ncaa d3 championship in 2013 in eight years was 270 and 96 for a winning percentage of 738 he ended up becoming the hitting coach for the AAA Tacoma Rainiers in 2016. Was the promoted to Mariners assistant, assistant coach in 2017 and third base coach for 2018. Uh, before taking a job with USA Baseball, where he was the coach of the uh, Premier 12 team that attempted to qualify for the 2020 Olympics. Pretty much all amateurs and D3 players. So the way the qualification happened was there was a Premier 12 tournament with the 12 uh, highest rated uh, baseball teams, the USA lost the, the bronze medal game to Mexico, giving Mexico automatic qualification. But then they were still an America's qualifying event, where the USA won the America's event that included every America's team other than Mexico, who had already qualified. That is how they, they, they didn't qualify at the first pass, they qualified at the second pass. In, in, the, final, in the final super round, they beat the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and Canada. And qualify, One of those so. teams is impressive to beat in baseball. Puerto Rico didn't even no. make it to the to the super round, unfortunately. They lost I, to I, Nicaragua. I'm willing to blame America for that. <laughs> All of Puerto Rico's misfortunes are always America's fault. Yeah, pretty much. So, Rochus was inducted into the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame in 2005. And uh, one last little bit about him. He threw out the first pitch in Game 6 of the 2009 World Series. World Series that I know me and Diaz know very well, as the Yankees uh, and his old teammate Mariano Rivera closed out closed out the series over the Phillies. All those old, many ring having, crepit motherfuckers managed to get one more. <laughs> I mean, let me just tell you, as a fan of someone that had to play them eighteen times a year, to just know, man, they they still have those guys. Those guys are still coming to Oriole Park and just lofting them over us as we as we sit outnumbered about probably two to one by Yankees fans in this stadium. 
York fans always travel very well. Like even they the travel, recent- they travel incredibly well. I have, I have to acknowledge that. It's because they mm-hmm. cut four thousand seats from the old stadium to make way for new forty new luxury boxes. So you know, hard to get a seat now. I do sympathize <laughs> with Yankees fans on that. That's some horse shit. I will give you all that. You have been mistreated by your organization. You still then, as an organism, mistreat the rest of the fans in baseball. But you have been mistreated by your organization, and you do deserve better than that. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, it's hard to say that there was ever like a forgotten player of a team like 98 Yankees. But I was thinking about it, and I'm like, all right, if I had to name 10 players on the 98 Yankees, I don't think Brocious would be in the first 10. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely appropriate. I think that's a very... My mind first when we talked about this to, like, Malcolm Smith from the Seahawks Super Bowl, and I think championship MVPs are a really good place to look for this kind of a guy because very often... I mean, in 1983, in the World Series, you've got Cal Ripken on that team, you've got Eddie Murray on that team, you've got Jim Palmer on that team, and it's the catcher, Rick Dempsey, who's like a lifetime 235 batter. He's the World Series MVP. Sure, why not? It's it's the guy that gets hot. Ben Zobrist was the Kansas City Royals World Series MVP. Again, unaired pilot. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's Scott Brocious. I think that's great. I, I, look, it's going to be tough for me to ever like feel any kind of emotion for a Yankee, but I'll admit, <laughs> I will admit, I like the idea of someone that, that comes into the organization and then gets... One thing I've always felt is that Yankees fans are a little bit fickle. I think that's fair to say. I, I'm sure Brocious was, was beloved at that time, and he does seem like someone that's maybe not been acknowledged as much by the fan base. Maybe he deserves a little bit more, and so f- for that reason, I'm happy to to give Scott Brocious some time, if only to say, hey, Yankees fans, appreciate what you had. Appreciate what you have that other teams don't. I mean, just, just thinking about the other guys in that team, obviously no one's going to say that Jeter, Rivera, Pettit, Posada, they didn't get their due. Bernie Williams got his due. Paul O'Neill, plenty of respect in announces for the team even tino martinez so just wanted to shout out scott brocious team member of a really good team i'm glad we got to remember scott brocious i'll i'll tip my cap to scott (laughs) scotty didn't know but now we remembered him that's important we do know scotty scotty does know we know scotty we remember scotty so my guy this week i will jump in forgotten members of championship teams have two options which I can call upon as a Philadelphia fan from my lifetime. I was thinking the 2008 Phillies, Eric Bruntlett would have been a fun one to go with as the only unassisted game-ending triple play in baseball history. Also scored the winning run in that five deciding game that brought the World Series back to Philadelphia for the first time in 28 years. But I decided Eric Bruntlett, I don't have enough fond memories of him. I, I mostly hated Eric Bruntlett. It was just a funny coincidence that he ended up having all these impactful plays. A player that I remember very fondly from the 2017 Eagles team, the tight end. Everybody remembers Zach Ertz made the game-winning touchdown catch in that Super Bowl. But some people forget, and I even forget sometimes, the heart and soul of that team is, in fact, another tight end who finally won the Super Bowl in his last season with the Eagles. After 11 long years with the franchise, I'm talking about Brent Selleck, 
<laughs> I think this is great. I love Bread Selic. I remember the one game that I've gone to at the link thinking as Selic and Ertz carved us up, and, and Selic carved us up more that day than Ertz. Man, these guys got a pair of tight ends. It's incredible. I go back through my entire Eagles fandom. We've almost always had two good tight ends. So it was Chad Lewis and LJ Smith. Then it was LJ Smith and Brent Selick. Then it was Brent Selick and Zach Ertz. Then it was Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard. Now Ertz is left. Tyree Jackson might be a guy. We'll see. But enough about all those other tight ends. I'm only focused on one tight end. There's only one that I'm looking at right now. And his name is Brent Selick. Brent Selick is a Cincinnati boy, born and raised. Went to LaSalle High School in Cincinnati. And then played his college ball all four years at Cincinnati with the Cincinnati Bearcats. And my first memory of Brent Selleck actually goes back before the Eagles even got him. So in his senior season on senior night, you may remember that crazy 2006 season of college football, particularly in the Big East, it was a great season. West Virginia was a huge title contender that year, but this was also the year that Rutgers put themselves on the map. So Rutgers- Oh yeah! Rutgers goes into Cincinnati as the number seven team in the nation. Theoretically, if they run out the strain with wins, they might find themselves in a national championship game. But it was senior day for Brent Selleck. Brent Selleck had some other ideas. The team is already up 20-3 to at this point. And Brent Selleck has been playing the full game, but has not been as involved in the passing game because he had a bum shoulder going into that game. But victory is in sight. Injuries don't matter as much. So Brent Selleck, they're up 20 to three. They've just gotten the ball back on their own 25. And he just caught like a simple flat route and turns it upfield. And he has one guy to beat. And he could have easily just stepped out of bounds. I have a hurt shoulder. Got like 30 yards at this point. But if you know anything about Brent Selleck, he's not going to step out of bounds. He's going he's gonna to do whatever he can. So he throws his bum shoulder into the defensive back trying to tackle him. The guy gets railroaded, Selleck spins off of it, runs the remaining 25 yards into the end zone. The whole time he's running into the end zone, doesn't break stride once, doesn't indicate a single amount of pain. Almost immediately, as soon as he gets in the end zone, he drops the ball, his shoulder drops lame, very clearly is injured. And I had to review the play because as he was going down the sideline, when he spun, they thought he may have stepped out of bounds. So he's down, getting looked at by the training staff. And the second that the official announces, play is confirmed, he did not step out of bounds, the touchdown is good, he immediately rises to his feet, and the broadcast just has like a tight shot of him just with the biggest dumb grin on his face. <laughs> it's at the student section with his bum shoulder. He's already forgotten that it was injured. As soon as he heard that it was a touchdown, that looks good. And I just, I always remember that play. It was the only catch he had in the game. He had one catch for 83 yards and a touchdown on senior night. And the second I saw that play, I was like, this is a guy that is going to do something in the league. I don't know what he's going to do. He's got toughness. He's got grit. And then, sure enough, my Philadelphia Eagles decided to bless me by bringing this random man that I watched play on a random old night in the middle of a college football season. Pick him in the fifth round. And as we know, fifth round, who knows what that person's going to make of their career. So first year, LJ Smith is still our starting tight end. Selleck is utilized more in a blocking role, but he's proving himself. He's proven that he is going to be around for a while. Second season, 2008, was the last great run of the McNabb-Andy Reid era. We snuck in on the last day of the season, which was an incredible sequence of events that we needed to get in. As, as dramatized by Silver Linings Playbook. Yes, of course. <laughs> 
So if you've seen Silver Lenny's playbook, you can skip ahead by about a minute on this podcast. But for those this is, who are this is the part where Robert De Niro is doing his really degenerate gambling. Exactly. Full on degenerate. So not only did we need the Vikings to beat the Giants, the Texans with nothing to play for, but they were decent that year. They had Matt Schaub, they had Andre Johnson. They needed to beat the Bears, and they did. It was really incredible. Both these games are happening in the 1 p.m. window. The Eagles don't play till 4.30. So we're watching these 1 p.m. games very intently. Texans get the win that we need. And the 4-11 and 11 Oakland Raiders, led by Jamarcus Russell at quarterback, going to Tampa Bay with absolutely nothing to play for. Nothing to play for. 4-11 and 11 at the Buccaneers win. They know that they have the wild card spot clinched. The Raiders blew the fucking doors off of them. Demarcus Russell had perhaps his only good game as a professional quarterback. And this sets the stage now. Eagles-Cowboys game has become a play-in for sixth wildcard spot. Eagles just dominate that game, 44-6. This allows Selleck to now really make his statement on the playoff stage. First of all, in the regular season, week nine, sets the franchise record for receiving yards by a tight end, 131 was on in the NFC Championship game that year against the Arizona Cardinals. He sets the franchise record for receptions by a tight end in a playoff game. He had 10 catches. So had two touchdowns in this game, 19 catches for the full playoff run, lost to the Cardinals. But 19 catches in that playoff run were the third most all-time by a tight end in a single playoff. I get it, Brett Selleck. So second season, he's establishing himself, knows what he's doing. He's feeling emboldened, feeling like he's a burgeoning star, and he's looking to cash in on some opportunities, some marketing opportunities. So the next season, against those same Dallas Cowboys at home in Week 9, Brent Selleck scores a touchdown. And Brent Selleck, with the help of Jason Avant, throws his leg up with his hand on it in the classic Captain Morgan pose. NFL was none too happy about this. Captain Morgan was not an NFL sponsor. Ooh. They were set to find him. However, Brent Selleck had to explain himself. He said, Look, I'm not even personally getting money for doing that. They said that they would donate $10,000 to Gridiron Greats, which was a nonprofit specifically set up to help former NFL players who are experiencing hardship after leaving the game. Now the NFL is in a, they're in a bind. Are we going to find this dude who did this thing to help the players that we have fucked over? It's like Mr. Burns' level of evil. Just very incredibly scummy. I would still expect them to do it, though, because it's the NFL. Incredibly. Perhaps the only instance in which the NFL has ever admitted that they were wrong. Did not find Brent Selleck. Rescinded the fine. But they did establish that if this happens anymore going forward, you will be fined. How about they just take care of uh, their old players, and then there would be no need for that? I mean, it's not like... CTE is a thing. Concussions aren't bad. <laughs> you know, I stand with Roger Goodell because <laughs> he's just a notoriously good individual who does good things. I'll clip this out for your uh, for your interview with Goodell next week, just so he knows you're on the up and up. Yes, Roger Goodell. People forget Good's literally in his name. How could he be a bad guy? Will so, Smith is a propaganda mouthpiece. Really is. He really is. But anyway, that 2009 season ends up being an incredible season for Selleck. At the team high in catches that year, 76, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Sixers, 9, 8, 76 catches uh, for 971 yards and eight touchdowns. Did not make an all-pro team. He did not make the Pro Bowl. But 
he was named to the USA Today All-Joe team, which is truly, I would say, if there was an all-guy team, that was what the USA was establishing here. So Brent Selleck was named to the All-Joe team. Time goes on, Brent Selleck continues to be a key part of the offense, but perhaps not a main focal point. Best blocking tight ends in football, for my money, throughout his career. Just an absolute... The Eagles never had to worry about doing the, the overload or bringing the sixth lineman because they already had a sixth lineman. They had Brent fucking Selleck. So, and especially after Zach Ertz came in, receiving ability, well above Selleck. He's a much better natural athlete than Selleck. So, Selleck still stays with the team. He's actually still the starter just because of his blocking ability up until that incredible 2017 season where Selleck did have career lows in just about all of his statistics, but continued to remain as the second tight end. And throwing huge blocks all along the way. Played in that Super Bowl. Did not have any catches in that Super Bowl. But he had the key block to sprain LeGarrette Blunt on his touchdown run early in that game. That's not just me saying it. Al Michaels, the second that he scored, said LeGarrette Blunt with the key block thrown by Brent Selleck. So Brent Selleck was mentioned on the broadcast. He got his shout out. The Al and Michaels guarantee. Al Michaels guarantee. Exactly. So finally, at the end of his 11th season... Brent Selleck has gone through the whole whole gamut, the whole Philadelphia tight end cycle. You come in as the number two, eventually get upgraded to number one. Then they bring in another young buck. You train him up. And fortunately, I wish he would have just retired. The Eagles did cut him Aww. in March of that season. This was his last season playing NFL. And when it came around to August, still nobody had signed Brent. So he did tire from the NFL. I, I do appreciate because it feels increasingly rare these days that a quote-unquote lifer for whatever franchise, it feels like they will often take like last paycheck with one other team, which you can't fault them for, but it does leave a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth, I think. Does anyone know the two teams that Ed Reed played for after the Ravens? He played for the Colts. No. I know he played for the Texans. He played for the Texans. He was cut after like four games in a three-year contract and he had played the Ravens already with the Texans. And then he signed with the New York jets and he played against the Ravens a second time. Wow. I don't remember that at all. We were very convinced going into the Patriots game that year that after he'd been cut by the jets, Bill Belichick was going to sign Ed Reed just to try and fuck with us because he'd also been in love with Ed Reed forever. This, this is, you know, of canon. But yeah, man, Ed Reed signed with the Texans and the Jets in one season. Pretty good. Who doesn't love Ed Reed? Those universal approval rating. That trio of safeties in the 2000s between Dawkins, Palomalu, and Reed. It's incredible because I would say they're the three best safeties of our collective lifetimes, and they all were playing in that same era. You could argue Cam Chancellor. I'd, I'd say Cam... If you had to say a fourth, I'd absolutely say Cam Chancellor. True, true. But what about the Honey Badger? Badger? Uh, honey Badger's got a long way to go. Does Honey Badger um, already have a better nickname than all four of them? Yes, absolutely. He does. It's he does. disputed. He also got punked by Tom Brady in that Super Bowl. So He did also get punked by Tom Brady. Ed Reed never really got punked by Tom Brady. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, that's Brent Selleck, a Cincinnati boy born and raised until he came to Philadelphia. I mean, he's with the team now as a, uh, a consultant in the football operations department. So he's staying local, staying with Philadelphia. So we always love to see that. So he spread joy and love and through crunching blocks to spring running backs, 
didn't care about the glory for himself, and did finally his reign. And Selleck, thank you for giving me top three night of my life, I would say. I'm not going <laughs> to say it's the greatest night of my life, but it's definitely right up there. When they I mean, Objective is a great game. Like, even it's not an Eagles fan, it was amazing. And then also to call all of you after that. Yeah, it was, it's... Walking down was, Broad Street was pretty fun that night. Absolutely. Well, see, here's what I always say about that. I had more fun at the celebration after the NFC Championship game because it was like, holy shit, we made it to the Super Bowl. This is amazing. And when we won the Super Bowl, it was like, well, what do we do now? You mean there's not a game next week? You mean we did it? The Super Bowl felt too surreal for me to be able to fully enjoy the immediate aftermath. The parade was amazing, and I was fully in by then. But it was just a bunch of people, like, we were staggered. Like, we couldn't believe that we finally did it. That's the that's the one distinction I'll always make. After the NFC Championship game was more cathartic for me than the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl just felt surreal. It's, and, and to an extent, it still does. I still can't believe we won. We got, we got about, one more guy. Go we got one more guy for champions. Uh, I did not do one of my personal ones because, frankly, they don't they don't feel forgotten to me. There's no one really forgotten from that 2012 team. Could I say Jacoby Jones from the Ravens? In Baltimore, Jacoby Jones is not forgotten. Jacoby Jones is actually a wide receivers coach for a very prominent high school football team in Maryland. So he's still like quite around in the state. There's no one really from that from ours. I decided to get historic. I went back to one of the greatest dynasties of all time. That is the UCLA Bruins men's college basketball dynasty. And when you say that, probably a few names come to mind. John Wooden, logically be the first name that comes to mind. Uh, you may consider someone like Lou Alcindor, part of a lot of those. Uh, Bill Walton, if you wanted to go a little bit more hipster. But I want to talk about a guy that was the beating heart of the very first title in this dynasty run. He goes by two names. We're going to do our very best to refer to him by whatever he was going by at that time. And so to start off with, we're going to talk about Walt Hazard. Walt Hazard, that is spelled with two Zs. Walt I like that Hazard. part. Yeah, it's a sick name. Second, you mentioned the two names thing. I was like, you already said Lou Alcindor. We're going there. I promise we're going there. You know, it's Walt Hazard, who, born in Wilmington, Delaware, grows up in the Philadelphia region. He played high school very briefly at some town Easton in Maryland. It's on the Eastern Shore. Couldn't find any more info about it, but largely he played in Philadelphia at Overbrook High School. Uh, Overbrook was his high school. It's right by me. Also the home of Will Chamberlain. I just need to throw also that in. Also the home of Will Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain yeah. went to Overbrook. And it's five minutes from my house. Be your kid uh, one day will grow up to be Will Chamberlain, Xavier. Well, I think if I be. were to live here, my kids would go to Lower Marion. So maybe maybe they can just be go. Kobe instead. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of good basketball players coming out of here. One of them was Walt Hazard. Very talented guard in high school. Uh, but he was a little bit small. Only 6'2". So it's 1960. He's graduating from Overbrook. And he's lightly recruited, but one person who does recruit him is John Wooden. John Wooden has already been the UCLA coach at this point for 12 years, since 1948. Little bit of background on the UCLA Bruins. Uh, they had joined 1927, the Pacific Coast Conference, the Southern Division of it. In the two decades that they'd been there, they'd won the division twice and never won the conference. The last year before Wooden came in, they went 12 and 13. Next year, they went 22-7, and seven, won the division. The next year, they went 24-7, and seven, won the division and the conference. Both of those were, at the time, the most wins in school franchise history. So immediately comes in, and, and he is 
just winning consistently. There is one big problem, though, and that is that at some point in the 50s, the UCLA men's football team got in a whole lot of trouble for paying some college players, which was still a crime at the time, as far as the NCAA was concerned. Let them make money. This did cause the school to have a whole bunch of probations that were in place for many years. But here's good news. It's 1961-62 season now. They have lifted the probations finally. And now that Walt Hazard is a sophomore, it is his first year on the UCLA men's varsity team. And this is when the ascent begins. If we were to include two years where the UCLA Bruins didn't win a championship in their dynasty, they would include these next two years because a couple different puzzle pieces are going to fall into place. Walt Hazard's the first one. He comes in as a sophomore. He's already the third highest scoring player on the team behind two seniors. He's putting up 13 points a game. They make it to the final four of the NCAA tournament. They play Cincinnati. There is a very controversial charging call on Walt Hazard himself late in the game. They give Cincinnati the ball back. They have a dude hit like a 22-footer, a guy by the name of Tom Thacker. Not like normally a shooter at all, just a -a once-in-a-lifetime shot that sends Cincinnati to the finals where they do beat Ohio State, sorry, the Ohio State University in a rematch from the previous year. But it's So this year has really convinced John Wooden, like, we do have something with this program. This program is going to go places. We are going to win a title soon. And good news is that this whole year, there's been a freshman, once again, who can't be on the varsity team, but has been kind of been incubating. And this next season, 62-63, is when the second puzzle piece is going to fall into place. This is Gail Goodrich. Gail Goodrich was an L.A. native. His dad had been a USC college basketball standout, and that was where he wanted to go. But similar to the fact that, you know, Walt Hazard at 6'2 is not a short guard, but he's certainly not a tall guard. Gail Goodrich was even a tiny bit shorter. Once again, John Wooden saw something. He really liked his shooting, and he brought Gail Goodrich in. Gail Goodrich immediately in the next year, you know, those two seniors graduate It's Gail Goodrich and Walt Hazard the next year, 100%. They are the backcourt, and they are offensive dynamos. This is the one year that Walt Hazard leads the team in points, but the thing that Walt Hazard is keeping up with this whole time is the defense. Walt Hazard, since his time in Overbrook, has been a tenacious defender. Even with all of these small guys, you know, he's still pulling down six rebounds a game, five and six rebounds his two first uh, years on these college teams, so... Once again, they do fall short in the tournament. They lose in the second round this time. Take a pretty tough beating, 93-79 to to Arizona State University. And they take some time to step back. John Wooden is considering, you know, we've, we've got this team that can score. But so their third best player, who has maybe an even better name than Walt Hazard, uh, his name is Fred Slaughter. They had Fred Slaughter and Walt Hazard on the same college team at the same time. That's phenomenal. I'm trying to think of the nicknames yeah. now for what I could well, for that group. There's a, there's a Slaughter Hazard. Yeah. The killing They're floor. Bears. Call, him the, call him the killing floor. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. He was their center. He was six foot five. This was a small <laughs> team. This was a very small team. Fred Slaughter was not actually slaughtering anyone all that much. This is where the final puzzle piece comes in. A coach, Jerry Norman. Jerry Norman had played for John Wooden all the way back at the beginning of his career in 1948 to 1952. He was co-captain his senior year. He's a solid player. Went off to the Navy, coached in high school a little bit, came back to be the assistant coach with John Wooden. He says, look, we've got these small guys. We're good in transition offense. We've got 
a guy that can really lead a strong transition defense. What we need to do is just go all out into the zone press defense. This is also kind of coming from him coming from high school. Zone press defense is a very basic defense that you can teach to people pretty early on. A brief summation, uh, this was a 2-2-1 zone press defense. So as the ball is getting either inbound from the opposing team for a foul or something or inbound because of a basket being scored, they are going to line up a pair of the guards, a pair of the forwards, and then the center in three rows all clogging up the middle. The idea is no movement through those lanes. You want to get it to the edges. You want to try and trap and force people to either make mistakes on the, the boundaries or try and set turnovers. You're not sticking man. You're just sticking that zone. The idea with this was if you have tenacious enough defenders that have good instincts on how to get people out to the lines and have good instincts on when to go for those turnovers and to stick with those turnovers, this would be really good. It can initiate the fast break offense. It can really just keep your team's confidence going because you're getting all of these turnovers and you're really not letting the other team have that time of possession. It requires a lot of defensive buy-in. And it's something that a lot of people are going to have come across because it is a pretty basic thing. So they'll have probably game planned against it. But Jerry Norman is convinced we've got Walt Hazard as the beating heart of this team. It is the straw that stirs the drink. He can lead this defense to get enough turnovers that we can just outscore everybody. Lo and behold, John Wooden gives into it. And who boy. Do they score a lot? Gail Goodrich is the leading scorer on the next team with 21 and a half points. Walt Hazard takes a slight step back from his 19.6 as a junior to only put up 18.6 points per game. They lead UCLA to their very first 30-0 undefeated season. They go on into the tournament. This was 24 teams making the tournament at the time. They beat Seattle in the round of 16. They get a nice little bit of revenge against the University of San Francisco in the round of eight. That is because in 1956, John Wooden lost the University of San Francisco when Bill Russell was playing for them. Got his two consecutive college championships. Understandable. Yeah, there's not much you can do against Bill Russell. Have you seen any of the college pictures of Bill Russell? Bill Russell's got a goofy smile in college, man. It filled me with a lot of joy when I came across that. They go on to eventually face, in the championship game, Duke University. And let me tell you, headlines had fun with the fact that a guy with the last name Hazard was taking on a college named Duke. It was awesome. So many bad puns that I'm going to try and save us from right now. But if you want to look them up, they're out there. I promise I want all the people puns. did not disappoint. All of them. So here's the thing. Walt Hazard completely leads this team throughout the entire tournament. He unfortunately fouls out pretty early in the second half. He does not get to play a whole lot in this game. Gail Godrich is the leading scorer once again with 27 points, which is at the time most that someone scored in a championship game. Gail Goodrich the next year would break that record by scoring 42, which would then later be broken by Bill Walton, another UCLA player during this same dynasty. After this championship, this UCLA dynasty is immense. They are going to win nine of the next 11 for 12 and 10 years. And all of it starts with this three-year run championed by Walt Hazard. And like, there's no way that Walt Hazard is even the, the fifth player that you probably come up with if you're trying to think of, of players from this run. Immediately after, Gil Goodrich is going to have a season with Lou Alcindor, who will then you know, run up a couple titles of his own. And it just, the torch keeps passing. 
Walt Hazard is absolutely acknowledged by the university. His, his number was retired, although it was taken out of retirement for one other player. This is his number 42. Anyone know who got the special dispensation relatively recently? Uh, got to wear this. It is Kevin Love. Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah. Kevin Love from UCLA. <laughs> and Walt Hazard, I mean, this is not the end for Walt Hazard. Walt Hazard's 1964. He gets a championship. He marries his wife, Jaleesa, who he'd met at UCLA. She was a cheerleader. Uh, he was just walking around one day with his college roommate, Arthur Ashe. You know, one of the greatest <laughs> oh tennis God. players of all time. Just does. walking around with his roommate, wearing sandals. He spots this girl. He looks at the girl. I'm going to marry that girl someday. She hears him. She says, not if you don't wear socks. Uh, he does apparently eventually find socks because they do get married. Tops it off with a gold medal in Tokyo with the men's basketball team in the 1964 Olympics. Gets drafted to the Lakers, the town that he'd been in already for several years, and has a couple good seasons there, productive bench minutes. He does get reunited very quickly on with Gail Goodrich, who also gets drafted by the Lakers, trying to recreate that magic. But then in the expansion draft, he ends up going to the Seattle Supersonics. Does have his one all-star season in Seattle in 1968. He has 24 points per game because someone had to score points for that Seattle team. And, and he, he makes the most of the opportunity, but he is eventually traded to Atlanta for Lenny Wilkins, 1971. And this is when Walt Hazard becomes a little bit more disruptive. Because Walt Hazard in 1971 has been friends with fellow UCLA Bruin, Lou Alcindor, for some time. And they've been exploring their faith, Islam, and its teachings. And both of them complete their conversions and take on new names. Lou Alcindor becomes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And Walt Hazard becomes Mahdi Abdul-Rahman. And this is what he begins to wear on his jerseys as well, starting in 1971 with the Hawks. Things aren't great in Atlanta when he first gets there. He calls his wife like a couple days into being in Atlanta after a game. She's about to move out of Seattle. Hey, maybe don't. They, they just played Dixie here. You know, the Confederate song instead of the national anthem before the game. Maybe don't leave Seattle and just stay there with the kids. He has this conversation with her. They do eventually come in. And he, he plays several years in, in Atlanta uh, with this name. He also then plays several years in Buffalo with the Buffalo franchise that will later become the Los Angeles Clippers and the San Diego Clippers. They're at this time called the Buffalo, we'll say the Buffalo basketball franchise. They share a name with the Atlanta baseball team at this time. And, and this is an expansion city. And again, he can tell his name is not appreciated by the NBA. And the thing is, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar can change his name and he's going to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he's going to be a dominant force and you can't ignore him. And Cassius Clay can change his name and Muhammad Ali is still going to be a dominant force and, and you can't ignore that. But it is no secret that sports don't necessarily love people that have things to say. you know. And Mahdi Abdul-Rahman definitely kind of feels that frost coming on. Same as you know, more modern example, Mahmoud Abdul-Raif, who had previously be known as Chris Jackson for not standing for the national anthem. We've heard of that also in our lifetimes, uh, was, was fined by the NBA. And uh, there's, there's a lot of resistance to, to kind of being all about that life. And Sharif Abdul-Rahim was like that too, but I think that was his birth name. I don't think he converted. I think Sharif Abdul-Rahim was always Sharif Abdul-Rahim. It's incredible the extent to which Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf has been blackballed by the NBA because it was... I play pickup basketball a bunch, and when I was at the court the other night, somebody was saying, oh, you know, Gilbert Arenas was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. He was taking those long shots before anybody. I was like, uh-uh-uh. 
Amur Abdul Rauf was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. And nobody there knew who I was talking about. I was like, listen, go home, pull up YouTube, search Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. You're going to see him taking 35 foot shots before anybody else was doing it. There's a certain level of good where they can't ignore you. But I would say if you're great, they can't ignore you when, when you speak up and you do stuff like that. But if you're only good, try to sweep you under the rug. So it's, it's a shame, but it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, so he plays a couple more years in the NBA, Golden State, Seattle, and then doesn't break training camp with the Pistons in 74, retires, and then he goes back to being known as Walt Hazard professionally, just to try and avoid the issues that have come up with that. Uh, he doesn't change his name legally, he's still Mahdi Abdul-Rahman legally, but he does go professionally now by Walt Hazard as he starts to get into coaching. People are going to keep having this issue, and uh, he felt like he didn't want that to necessarily be an obstacle. And he was still very much into his faith, but he was not a proselytizer by any means. He was a coach for many years after this. He uh, starts with the Compton Community College for a salary of 1500 and not like 1500 per week. Like 1500 was the salary. Uh, they go 53-9 and nine over a couple seasons. They do get 22 wins vacated because of an ineligible player. <laughs> but all of his players love him. All of his players speak super highly of him. Uh, more payments, just like the UCLA football team. Yeah. When he was, when he was you know, pay, paying the community college players to advertise for him. You know. I don't know what the ineligibility was. I couldn't find details about that. I have a feeling it probably wasn't them receiving cash payments. He does eventually become... The fifth John Wooden player to go on to coach UCLA during a time where a Reggie Miller is in UCLA. And huh. again, Reggie Miller's like, this guy was the reason that I loved being at school. He he created the culture that made me happy to be there. Was never, oh, and can I interest you in the uh, teachings of our prophet Muhammad? He reportedly did not you know, feel like that was something that needed to be brought into coaching any more than just how he comported himself as a person which I think, based on just how he seems to be treated for bringing that up, is important to note that it was not becoming a part of, of the everyday interactions with his players. And he has a decent career at UCLA. He, goes, he wins the NIT their first year. Humdrum second year. Third year, uh, makes it to the second round of the March Madness tournament. And then his final year, he goes 16-14. and 14. Two wins above 500 is not enough for UCLA, and he is fired at that point. He goes on to then just... Be a scout with the Lakers for several years until he sadly suffers a stroke in 96. That stroke does eventually lead to his death in 2011, the age of 69. But the nice thing about that is he had been a very beloved member of the Lakers organization in his time there. The Bus family did cover his medical expenses that entire time. He's been very clear in, in many of the talks. Many of his kids, DJ Khalil, his uh, son is a Pretty popular DJs, worked with Eminem, talked about how legally their name, last name is Abdul Rahman, but some of his siblings use the last name Hazard. Some use it. It's, it makes things harder for them to exist in life sometimes that way, and that's unfortunate. That very sincere choice that was reached through introspection and education by someone was used to then potentially make it harder for their children to live. We don't love that. Yeah. But I do think that it is important to, to kind of look at this insane stretch of success that a team has like they i don't think you can say anything really comes close to 10 or 12 championships except for maybe those celtics like it's bill russell celtics and then it's the john wooden 12-year run with the ucla bruins i'm probably the two most 
untouchable dynasties of all time. And if you want to add those two years before it, and I think you really should to understand how those 12 years get unlocked, there is one person at the center of those first three seasons, and it is Walt Hazard. Only other team that I would posit to coexist with those dynasties would be UConn women's basketball. I don't know. The, the John Wooden ones... The number of consecutive championships they win is is absurd. So I know for UConn, I don't think it's I don't think they ever got more than like three or four consecutive. But they have the greatest win streak of all time. I think we can acknowledge UConn has the greatest win streak of all time and should be celebrated. Fuck yeah, Gino Arim. Can someone help me? Thank you. And just one last thing I would say about UConn women's basketball is just. The, the famous debate was always like, is this good for the sport? And look at how good women's basketball is now with Dawn Staley down in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Rutgers is a juggernaut now. Mississippi State is a juggernaut now. Baylor's a juggernaut now. Well, I think the one of the biggest positive outcomes of that is it was such a good attraction of talent and it was such a good developer of talent to just make the top women's game, you know, more appealing and make it so that more people are catching on to that early on and getting brought into it. Like it's it created so many more fans and more of its own players. We're now reaching the point where we're getting WNBA players that are stars that have favorite WNBA stars that they grew up with. I want to bring up one thing real quick because you briefly touched on something that is another example of one of our favorite things in sports, the Ewing theory. So the Cincinnati Bearcats uh, men's basketball team, they did not make the NCAA tournament until Oscar Robertson's first year being able to play varsity, so his sophomore year in 58. And they made back-to-back Final Fours in 59 and 60. And once he's gone, they win two straight national championships and then reach the title game the year after that. Oscar Robertson was the problem. Oscar Robertson was the problem, and I think we can all admit that. Hey, get rid of one of the best players of all time, and then you win two titles. As one does. Well, with that, we do have uh, a discussion to make about our, our beloved title-winning bench warmers or, or forgotten lifters of cups and trophies. Early on with the Brett Selleck, I was like, I, I, Brett Selleck, I think, is the only one of these gentlemen that I've seen perform live. And that does, that does entice me a little bit. I, I do like to be able to say I saw Brett Selleck have just a workmanlike day against the Ravens, have an incredibly Brett Selleck leveling dudes and then catching like four three-yard catches that do all go for first downs. Hyper-efficient. I would defer to your guy this week, though, because as a self-professed basketball aficionado, basketball is definitely my number one sport, I had never heard of Walt Hazard. And this is incredible career that he had playing under John Wooden, helping to establish the dynasty there, coming an all-star in the NBA, going back to coach UCLA. Here's another thing he did. He appeared in Gilligan's Island at one point as Walt Hazard. He appeared on Gilligan's Island as an Air Force lieutenant who loses a jetpack on the island, and then they fail to successfully use the jetpack to escape the island. And that's the episode. This was towards the end of the third and final season of Gilligan's Island. So what I would be curious is, did Walt Hazard get invited to Gilligan's Island because of Airplane? Or did the writers of Airplane see that Walt Hazard was a pilot on Gilligan's Island and thought, you know, why don't we get little Kareem in here? 
and uh, we'll have him be our pilot. I mean, chronologically, it's 100% the second one. Incredible. Walt Hazard laid the groundwork for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Multiple times he did. He laid the UCLA groundwork for him. I do also want to say to Scott Brocious, it's a lot that a Yankee like does have me considering him. Like It does mean a lot that a Yankee's got me thinking, hey, Scott Brocious, though, huh? Huh? All right, you don't have to think about it too hard. I was already going to go with Walt Hazard. I was just waiting for you guys to finish. I do appreciate also that he did get to play Duke for the championship. That's pretty perfect. Love a good pun. Well, oh. if, if that's the case, then, consent. then unanimous consent. We will, we will contact the estate. We graciously extend a posthumous induction into the Hall of Guy for Walt Hazard. Philly raised, if not Philly born. Welcome to the Hall of Guy, Walt Hazard. Uh, and that, that brings us to uh, another thing that we welcome you, and that's the end of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed remembering some guys with us. If you want to ever send us some guys to remember, you can always send them to our email at rememberingguys at gmail.com or send anything you want to the Twitter at rememberguyspod. That's all I got. You guys got any last things to go out on? There's some content for us that we can, that we can make now. I like the idea of an all-guys team. All guys we should team. do that. All guy, we should make an all-guy team. Because at the I end of every it. season? Okay, at the, yeah, at the end of each of the big four seasons, we got to fill that out. All right, starting lineup. Like the first inductee has to be, what's his face, Marcus Hunt? Last Robert, Hunt. The, Robert Hunt. Robert Hunt. With the greatest play that didn't count that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was pretty great. New rule. Anytime an offensive lineman scores a touchdown, it counts, regardless of what other flag would have been thrown. He stretched and went all the way over top of a defender and did break the plane for a thing that he knew was not going to count because the ball was thrown right to him. But just in the moment, he tried anyway, and it was fantastic. He, was... he put on a better performance than any member of the Ravens' offensive line in that one play. Just the second he caught it, it was like, wait a minute, he can't do that, can he? What? The brazen legality of it is what made it so amazing for me. Yes, so Hunt, Guard, Dolphins, first ballot, all guy. <laughs> Hopefully, by the time you're all listening to this, USA men's soccer will have beaten Mexico's men's soccer team. USA. And I hope so. I hope USA. so. <laughs> USA. Truly, I would say the only times that I ever feel what one would call patriotism is when watching USA sports teams. That's the one time where I'm like, give me an American flag. I need to drape myself. Be a bald eagle like pullover uh, mask kind of thing, go USA, beat all those other countries that are not as good as us at sports. Let's distract ourselves from the realities at home. With sports! As we, as we all better. Say. Nothing better. Yeah. Well, we hope you enjoy distracting yourself with some sports after distracting yourself with this. My name is James. I'm the not-so-special guest host, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Macbeth once said in the famous Shakespearean play, this is a guy which I see before me. Till next week. <laughs> <laughs>